You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is the second of a set of programs with a man one must enormously respect for his constant forthrightness in speaking out about what ails our country and our times, for a man who truly speaks truth to power. And as I noted last time, Bill Moyers is still a youngster at the top of his form, which, to be sure, for me preeminently means as an American public intellectual and as very much an old-time, long-time preacher and teacher, if you will. Indeed, I prefer to identify my friend just that way, rather than as the print journalist, ordained Baptist minister, early Peace Corps executive, presidential press secretary, newspaper publisher, commercial and public broadcaster, and splendid prose writer he has been over the years since he was born in Oklahoma, raised and schooled in Texas. Most of all, my guest is a superb conversationalist with whom I at times disagree, but whose skills on and off the air I admire, admittedly to the point of envy, and whose wonderfully readable book just published by the New Press and drawn from his most recent public broadcasting venture is Bill Moyer's journal, The Conversation Continues. Now, we'll deal with this splendid volume again in a moment, but first I want to draw my guest into the discussion of a theme on which we may only seem to disagree. Bill, you were here a decade uh, ago and more, uh, and after I exchanged my usual business about my guest being an optimist, and I'm always the pessimist, you said something uh, that built upon my asking you whether we could then move on to the subject of LBJ. You were his press con uh, secretary. You were his chief assistant. Uh, and after I asked you about optimism and said I was a pessimist, uh, this is the way the program went. I do. I believe that this is a traditional American view, uh, 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 you know, Whitman, I think it was, yes, Whitman said, be radical, be radical, be not too damned radical. Uh, and by being radical, it simply means uh, uh, try to keep the record straight. Try to keep the record straight. I think in time, if you do keep the record safe, uh, you, 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 somebody acts on it. I come from a part of the country that suffered miserably, as did the whole country, because we, we, killed uh, the truth. We drove the truth-sayers out of the pulpits, drove the truth-sayers out of the editorial offices, drove the truth-sayers uh, out of the classrooms who tried to tell the truth about slavery. And as a consequence of that, the South, living in its official view of reality, living in its closed world of, of, of justification of, of slavery, went to war with the rest of the nation. And we are still suffering from that failure of politics, failure of journalism, failure of, of, of the church, and failure of education to deal with the truth about slavery. I was part of an administration, the Johnson administration. I was press secretary for the last two years of my stay there. 
that closed the wagons around ourselves in response to Vietnam. The truth didn't get in very easily. And finally, when it didn't get in, we all sort of shared the same view of the world, the same view of Vietnam. And as a consequence of that terrible thing to happen, an administration failed. Lyndon Johnson died a tragic president, and the country and the Vietnamese went through a horrible thing. Why? Because the contrarian forces, the, the alternative view of reality, never really penetrated to the consciousness of the decision makers. In no small part, it isn't some high moral principle that drives me to want to believe that setting the record straight is the best thing a journalist can do. It is simply the practical reality of what happens when a society, a culture, an organization, a mind, a school, a community, uh, a wagon train, a family, just lives by its own law and lives by its own reality, not aware that there are many realities out there that have to be accommodated and addressed and acted upon if we're going to have a healthy human society. So it's a very practical consequence of a civil war that almost destroyed the nation and of a Vietnam War that destroyed an administration and rivet, rivet and, and tore the country apart that makes me think this, you have to be hopeful about this. You have to keep agitating for this. You have to be radical, be radical, although, in my own case, not too damn radical. You know, I've never heard a more eloquent statement uh, and you mentioned the magic words. Just as we come to the end of the program, I haven't gotten the sign yet. Uh, I don't know whether we have seconds or a minute left or, or what. Would you be willing to talk here someday about the Johnson administration? Sure. I mean, I, I, haven't, I, I haven't talked a great deal about the Johnson administration because I was young when I left there and I wanted to go on with my life. I was, the day I left, I received a telegram from a very powerful uh, publisher in New York wanting me to write a book about the Johnson years. And I said, well, first of all, I don't want to be the thief of his confidence. Second, I want to get on with my life. I don't want to live forever in this short period of my life in Washington. I've got work to do. I was 33 when I left. And I, well, there are other things. So I haven't dwelled in the past. I'm 66 now. And uh, at the end of my broadcast career, not at the beginning of it, and uh, I've got some time to think and reflect, and I am, I am giving some serious thought to writing a modest uh, account of the Johnson years, the LBJ uh, years. I don't know for sure what I think about it. Uh, I, I, I haven't made up my mind, or about him. I loved Lyndon Johnson. I was a young man in his orbit, and I really loved the man. Uh, I, I knew what it was like having a father that you know is an alcoholic or a father whom you know is deeply flawed, but you still love him. And I, and I knew Lyndon Johnson was a deeply flawed man, and yet there was something about him that could rise to an occasion, that could do the right thing when the chips were down, that, that, that increased both my awe and my affection for him. So I'm trying to think through, 40 years later, uh, if I can trust my memory and rely on my judgment, what I think. And when I get a little closer to... Uh, when I get a little closer to knowing what I think about him, I'll be glad to come back. You're here now. And yet, Bill, I, I, you and I have had a running uh, exchange. Uh, you talk about being open to our audience and not hiding any agreement or disagreement from them about talking about Johnson. And uh, I know you've been reluctant 
Uh, and yet you say to me, um, or said to me, I don't want to come on your program if I have put a lid on what you're going to ask me. It's not right for there to be some prior agreement between host and guest. And I thought that to be nonsense. <laughs> I've thought that to be contrary to good sense and that there isn't any reason why you can't say what you said on that program. You don't choose yet to talk and for me to accept that and move on. My objective, and I don't think it was a different from these conversations that continue in this wonderful new book, Bill Moore's Journal. Uh, not wasn't your objective to put people on the spot. You wanted people to say what they were going to say to it, say to you what you wanted your audience to hear. No? And the question? The question is why do you feel that it isn't appropriate for me to know that you won't talk about a certain area of common interest and to abide by that, to respect well, your judgment? When you called me, I had just done, to, to do this conversation, I had just, I, we started to market the book, as they say, started to promote the book, and I'd gone on three consecutive broadcasts, much shorter than this, but they referred to the book, and then they wanted to talk about Lyndon Johnson. And that was 50 years ago. I understand their curiosity, but that's not where I was, and that's not where I am. And and I thought it was unjust to the people in this book whose wisdom needs to be retrieved. It was, it is retrieved between hard copper. It needs to be read by people. And 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 an injustice to the participants in my book and to the audience, because you heard me say 11 years ago, I don't know what I think, and maybe I'll give some thought to it, but you know what I did after that? I came back, I retired and then came back and to journalism. And then I retired again and I came back to journalism. You know what that says to me? The present is much more compelling to me than the past. And I did spend some time, Dick, uh, going through some of my records, looking at what I had kept, not a great deal, but what I kept, and I decided that, first of all, it wasn't that interesting to me. Most of what needs to be said about Lyndon Johnson has been said. Robert Caro's books have informed me, because I was only with LBJ for four years. I was, I'm no authority on Lyndon Johnson. Bob has done the history. Bob Cairo has done the history. I'm a journalist. The past wasn't that interesting to me. I mean, there's nothing to me more enthralling than being able to participate as a journalist in what's happening in our society and to share it. You know, I said it's almost a cliche with me that, that journalism has been a continuing course in adult education for me, my education, and that I've had a classroom to share with the audience that cares to watch. And that's far more intriguing to me than trying to figure out what I think about Lyndon Johnson. And I haven't had too many fresh thoughts about him in the 11 years since you did that interview, that conversation uh, with me. And it's just not as important to me as I find talking to these people and sharing their wisdom, insights, ideas with as many people as I can reach who want to watch as do. But these people, one of the people says to you, I'm saying, not saying this has ever happened, says to you, uh, Moyes uh, 
delighted to talk with you. I've watched you all these years. I think you're terrific. Uh, there's one area, though, that I'm not going to talk about. I, I haven't made up my mind, and I'm not interested in it. And he repeats everything you just said. Would you not want him on the program or her on the program would re and respect the judgment of that person? First of all, when I did say to you a few weeks ago I didn't want to talk about Lyndon Johnson, I repented, right? I communicated to you that I, that was a mistake and that I, I shouldn't put any hold on But you. what was a mistake? Not putting a hold? No, my hope, my, the mistake was to say there's something I won't talk about. If we had held to that bargain, you would, of course, being, and I'm serious about this, an honorable man, have told the audience that Bill said he won't talk about Lyndon Johnson. I don't but, know. That's, that's like having the, the empty chair there when someone who knows you're out to get him or that you're going to get him doesn't come on the program. That happened to me once. Really? With Carmine DiSapio <laughs> and Ed Koch. And they both promised to come on the program and Carmine DiSapio didn't appear. And we had an empty chair there. I wouldn't do that again for all the money in the world. But what's the matter with uh, my understanding that if it is the case that Moyers, for the reasons you have just offered, doesn't want to talk, doesn't choose to talk about... Uh, There's nothing wrong with our agreeing not to talk about any subject, but when we do, it seems to me you would want to, as I know you would, inform the audience. Bill says he doesn't want to talk about the Johnson White House. That's, then, the audience were not, then the audience is free... It's freed of any suspicion that you've entered into some kind of collusion uh, to their disadvantage. Oh, come on now, Bill. No, well, no, the show goes off. Why didn't he ask about Lyndon Johnson? Sure. Why not? Because he's a dummy or for some other reason? I'm willing to talk about Lyndon Johnson. I think it's a boring subject. Quite, you quite do? Frank. I think it's an ancient subject, yes. How ancient is Vietnam Well, the today? stars are no ancient. I mean, we are all living with the scars of World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea. I just saw a marvelous documentary the other night, small piece of action in Korea, the, trying to take a hill. Uh, no, those scars stay with us. I wasn't talking about the old scars, Bill. I'm talking about the new ones. What do you mean? I'm talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and the possibility well, of other involvements. What combines the presidencies of Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and any president who has used power since then is that, look, it, our, we, we haven't won any wars. Uh, You've noticed. I've noticed that. And, and, and military power is great for defense. You, you have to, that, the, the preamble of the Constitution to defend the common defense. But it's, it's not a good proactive, it's, a, it's, an in, it's a counterproductive, proactive use of power. Lyndon Johnson learned that, uh, George W. Bush learned that, Barack Obama is learning that. that, that we're learning in Libya, you know, what in, in Afghanistan. We have this assumption that our projection of force can change reality. It doesn't change reality. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's the march, as Barbara Tuckman said, to folly, to think that our military, our understanding of the world is such that we can apply a torch somewhere and change habits of centuries and mores 
of people with deep roots in history, and uh, it hasn't worked. Didn't work in Vietnam. Didn't work. Iraq. Well, the neoconservatives say, "Well, Iraq. Look at Iraq today. So it's um, it's 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 a safer society." Oh, you know, if you if you've been there, if you know what's going on there, in Afghanistan, we'll leave. If we ever leave, it'll go right back to what Genghis Khan found it. Andrew Basevich, the great historian at Boston University, was a Vietnam veteran, graduate of West Point, talks about the, 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 the call, high cost of empire. And we have one. I mean, just the other day, Obama was in Poland announcing an air unit that he's going to put in Warsaw to, so that we can symbolize uh, our fraternity with the Poles. Oh, that's part of empire, you know, and, and no empire has ever thrived long enough to gain the advantages over what they lost by being an empire. And um, we are an unintended empire, but we are an empire. And that is, called, that is you can't have, have empire and democracy, just as you can't have oligarchy and democracy. They don't go together. Then the relevance of Lyndon Johnson to today is very great. And you seem to say that that's past. No, I, when most people say they want to talk about Johnson, they want to talk about his personality foibles. They want to talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 man's character, or they want to talk, you know they want to talk about uh, uh, the FBI and Martin Luther King, all of which has been covered. Uh, and and that's what I say. I mean, that's been op- that is open. There are, I don't think there are any secrets about Lyndon Johnson uh, now. And my opinion of him hasn't changed. He was 13 of the most fascinating and contradictory uh, people I knew. He could be magnanimous one moment and churlish the next. He was the best dancer in the White House since George Washington, but he could also step on a lot of toes. Every woman wanted to dance with him, but a lot of men ran from him because he could really step on their toes. Uh, He could soar to the moment, as he did with civil rights, 64, 65, 66. Uh, he could also be very petty and vengeful. He was a complicated figure. Uh, that's Bob Carroll's book. Bob Carroll's book showed that. I've said that. There's not much new to say, and there are no secrets between Lyndon Johnson and me. So why does Bob Carroll want so much to sit down and talk with Bill Moyers? I suppose it uh, gives him a first uh, a witness to history that he would find useful in his, in, in, in his work. I don't know, but Bob Cairo did call me. The only time I've talked to Bob, he called me one day and he wanted to, he said, I don't want to talk about LBJ. I want to talk about the environment of a certain meeting at the, at the Johnson Ranch. And I said, that's fine, I'll do what I can. And I told him what I thought about that environment that took place when LBJ had this particular meeting. I went overnight and checked. I was wrong on every point. And I had to call him the next day and said, Bob, I have to take that back. I've checked what I can of the record online. You can go to the LBJ library. I was wrong. I was wrong. And you talk about the difference between a journalist and a historian. When the journalist is wrong, there's time to correct it. When a historian is wrong, the record, as I said, is skewed. And I don't trust my memory to be really intimate in my any revelations about that era. That was half 
a century ago. Two things. One, I think you're absolutely wrong about when the journalist is wrong. It isn't that significant because he can change the record. I don't think the New York Times changing on on its website what has appeared on the front page of the Times uh, before makes all that much difference. No, I, I, I don't agree with it, but more important... It won't be the first time you and I have had a gentleman's right, disagreement. Right, but more important, uh, this business about memory, that interests me. You really... This bothers you a lot, doesn't it? It does. Of course it does. If I had not checked, Bob... Bob's a great fact-checker. Bob's account of that meeting would be discolored by having talked to someone who was present, but whose recollection is very faulty. And that would have been unfair to Bob, unfair to the participants in that meeting, and unfair to the reader, above all. Posterity. Well, our grandchildren. Why then don't you, why then don't you do uh, your oral history? which is going to involve you in doing all the digging into your papers, all of the researching, all of the checking your memory. Again, Dick, it's because the world today is far more interesting to me than my recollections of a, of a, of a disappeared world. It really is. I don't, that sounds like a cliche. It sounds like a routine, but the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, Watching and reporting and analyzing what is happening to our society means more to me and is more fun than recollecting the past. Yeah, but uh, your fun aside, we don't care about your fun. You know that. I do. You're more concerned about the world than you are about your fun. I know that to be a fact. The question of the importance of your accurate recollection of the past, I, I find it passing strange that you, who I think is probably the best-read man I've ever met, (laughs) uh, that you pretend, uh, forgive me, pretend to discount uh, history and what you could contribute. I'm not pretending. There's no pretense in my discounting. You're just wrong. If Bob Carroll were not doing what he has done, if if Robert Dalek has not done what he did, if uh, there's there's a historian who's Woods, who's you know senior moment, who's done a remarkable biography, one volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, Doris Kearns' account of the psychological play in Lyndon Johnson's mind. No, compared to what they have done, the memory I would bring to bear is minor and inconsequential, and that is not pretense. That is not pretense. If I had done it when you know when Doubleday asked me the day I resigned. As, as from the White House, sent that telegram, offered me a quarter of a million dollars then, which in 1966 was quite a bit of money. If I'd done it then, as Arthur Schlesinger did, a thousand days, right, right after Kennedy's death, there would have been some value in that. That would have been the, the, the temporary memory of somebody who had just left, who just left the battlefield and could look back and see the bodies, could see the failed strategy, all of that. But now, no. no it, and there's something else. Lyndon Johnson got paranoid when books about Kennedy kept started coming out. And he said, I don't ever want that to happen. And he asked Abe Fortas, his counsel, who later became uh, justice of the Supreme Court, to get every one of us 
on the White House staff to sign an agreement. We would never write a book about it. When Abe came to my office and said, here's the form, I said, I'm not going to sign it, Abe. He said, why? And I said, because it implies that Lyndon Johnson thinks I'm here to write a book. He doesn't, but it implies that when he looks at me and we talk and we spend three or four hours together in the bedroom at night while he's going to sleep or doing the night reading or when I'm in the office early in the morning, that his, in the back of his mind, there's a suspicion that I might write a book. No, that is a breach of our faith in each other. And I'm not going to sign it. And so I'm going to start packing to leave. We never heard about that again. It would be unbecoming to me of me now to write a book that he understood I would never write. And I don't want to be the thief of his confidence. I don't want to go back on the deep relationship that the two of us had. He is a much older man, I is a much younger man. And do what he didn't, what I didn't need to be asked legally required not to do. Abe Fortas got it. LBJ got it. He always had second thoughts about his darker moments. He always, he always took things back. And that is why there was no agreement, which would have been an act of dishonor to ask us to sign an agreement. Bill, I'm getting that cut signal again. Would you stay a while longer? and do another program? And I have commitments. I, I really, I must go. I'll come back sometime, but I do have commitments that I must take care of today. Can I repeat that you'll come back? Yes, I'll come back. Bill Moyes, thanks so much for joining me again. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.